when I when I spoke when, when I spoke to Rick about uh, adding in the extra section uh, to commemorate the Queen, I said to him, "Don't worry, I'll just chop five minutes off my sermon," which I did very successfully. But then listening to the service this morning and picking up bits, I've probably added uh, the five minutes back in. So I'm going to try and edit a bit as I go. So if it jumps around a bit, please apologize, but I'll try and stick to uh, my time. Uh, and just to say in terms of that passage that we've just read, I'm only going to look at the first part, uh, not the second part. But I wanted us to hear the whole I wanted us to hear the whole thing. And maybe just one thing to note about the second part, maybe if you read it again later. Have a look at Stephen's trial and just think about how similar it is to Jesus' trial, and just notice all the echoes uh, following Jesus, literally, uh, for Stephen. But just just notice how similar uh, the two things are. But I want to concentrate mainly on those first parts uh, of the the seven verses that, that Ian has just read. But before we do that, let's just go back a couple of chapters to Acts chapter 4. And now I can't get this to work either. It's on. There it is. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And God's grace was so powerfully at work among them that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, bought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. But by Acts 6, the system had broken down. It was no longer working properly. The church is growing. The 12 apostles are frantically rushing around, trying to stay on top of things. They're preaching. They're leading prayer meetings. They're discipling the believers, not to mention overseeing the distribution of money to the poor and the needy across multiple congregations, multitasking in in multiple ways. Uh, There were lots and lots of small There wasn't one big church in Jerusalem. Lots and lots and lots of smaller congregations meeting in people's homes. Uh, And it all feels a bit like church on the hoof. Uh, With just the 12 disciples trying to hold everything together. But now things are getting missed. And I can so relate to that. Uh, I was was thinking actually uh, a couple of days ago. I was thinking, sometimes during the week, I get messages on WhatsApp, on Facebook Messenger, on text message, on email, on, on phone messages. People speak to me in person, and I miss things, and I forget things, and I am not very good at multitasking. I can do one thing at a time. I can't do multiple things. So I, I get what's going on here. I really do. The disciples, the apostles are trying to do too many different things. They are trying to do too much. And things are getting missed. And one particular group are getting missed. Uh, The text referred to them as the Hellenistic Jews. They're being overlooked, neglected maybe, or at least their widows are. So who are this group, you might be be wondering, Uh, Well, Jerusalem at the time was this pretty cosmopolitan city. Folks coming from all over the place and settling there, either for a short period of time or for a longer period of time. Uh, And some of those people originally came from Greece. Uh, Some would have come on account of work. 
They had business interests which made it more sensible for them to be in Jerusalem. Others were part of what's known as the Jewish diaspora. They were Jews who originally lived outside of Israel, but had returned home. Apparently, it was a thing that lots of older couples who'd lived most of their life outside of Jerusalem, outside of Israel, would return to Jerusalem later in life so that they could be buried with their ancestors. So they would up sticks and they would move uh, as a couple to Jerusalem and then maybe the husband died and the widow was left behind. And some of these folks have now come to faith in Jesus and they'd form this Greek-speaking congregation. Uh, when, I, when, I, when I was in London, I know we had a, one church had a Tamil-speaking congregation and one church had a con- uh, Congolese-speaking congregation I think there was a Portuguese-speaking congregation in one of the churches I knew. So it's still happening today. Uh, being able to worship God in your own tongue, in your own language. Uh, so so, so that's, that's what was happening. And We often forget when we look at the early church that basically they're making it up as they go along. Uh, they're responding as things come up and adjusting and always, yeah, church on the hoof, as I said, uh, Sometimes we think that Acts gives us a great model of what church life should look like. Uh, But what we see happening in Acts is not a blueprint to be slavishly followed. It's far too chaotic for that. Maybe think of Pastor Joachim and his church in Guinea-Bissau. As Margaret was talking, I was thinking, yes, that's it. Uh, A church with a nurse and a pig cooperative. It's great, isn't it? Because those are the needs. Uh, What does the church look like in Acts? Well, it depends what the need looks like. Maybe that's a good model for church life in the 21st century. What's the need? And what does church look look like in response? And maybe that those structures that we do have, those practices that we do have, those traditions that we do have, important as they can be, should be held lightly. A church that's quick on its feet quick to respond to needs and opportunities for ministry and for mission. And I think that's what we see going on throughout Acts, really. That's what we see going on here. And thank you, Margaret, for those pictures. I think it gives us a great contemporary picture of what that looks like. Back to our, briefly, to our our Greek widows. One of the things you come across when you read through Scripture you read through the whole of scripture regularly, is again and again and again God's care for the poor and the vulnerable and the needy and his desire for justice. Church is where the needy, need is, where the needy are. Uh, I always remember when I was a young Christian hearing Jim Wallace uh, describing how while he was in seminary, he and some friends cut out all the verses in the Bible that had to do with poverty and social justice. They cut out 2,000 verses, about a quarter of the Bible, and he would hold the Bible up and say, say, say to some people, this is your Bible. And of course, it's just missing. It doesn't hang together anymore. Uh, and one of the verses that would have been caught out that, in a sense, captures, particularly in the Old Testament, God's concern is, is this. He is the great God. The, this is Deuteronomy 10. He is the great God, the mighty and awesome God. He ensures that orphans and widows receive justice. 
He shows love to the foreigners living among you and gives them food and clothing. And time and time and time again, particularly in the Old Testament, the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner are kind of a shorthand. These are the weakest and the most vulnerable members of the community. No family. No friends to support them. On their own. Maybe infirm. Uh, They need the community. And so... These widows from Greece, they fulfill two of those criteria. They're from abroad, they're foreigners, and they're widows. And maybe this is a slight digression, but maybe one of the ways we assess the health of any society, any country even, is how much they reflect God's priorities for justice and care of the vulnerable, the most vulnerable. But whatever's going on in in wider society, the apostles are determined that there will be no needy among them. And so they come up with a cunning plan. Sorry, whenever I hear the word plan, I always think of Blackadder. They come up with a cunning plan. It was a plan. Uh, They come up with a plan. They, They recommend that the church chooses seven men. And we know that, it mentions men here, we know that as we read Paul's letter, lots of women were involved in the ministry of the church. Uh, that time, but for here, it's, it's seven men full of the spirit and wisdom who will take responsibility for the care of the widows and presumably for the care of all the weak and the vulnerable. And the church agrees. And Steve and Philip and so on are chosen and commissioned and set apart for this ministry. And the church is changing and the church is adapting. And the section ends, if you noted, with this comment that the church continued to grow, and the word of God continued to spread. The problem has been identified and dealt with, and the church moves forward together. And maybe there's also a lesson for all of us here in leadership, in leadership in this church, but also in leadership in in wider wider society. Uh, When we face criticism, or when something goes wrong, it's easy to double down, or to blame someone else, or to defend ourselves, or to cover our back, or to seek excuses. I've done it. So easy to do. But here the disciples simply listen, and they recognize the problem, and then they do something about it. And there's no pride, and there's no... There's a problem, we need to solve it. I think there's a good... Lesson there for those of us in leadership. But let's just hop back a second. Sorry, those are the seven they chose. Just briefly to Acts 2 and 3. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and they said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. So let's start with what this verse is not saying. It is not saying that the apostles' ministry of teaching is more important than waiting on tables or serving the poor. It's not saying that the apostles are above doing such menial labor. Uh, It is not saying that spiritual things are more important than so-called practical things. I don't think you can split spiritual and practical anyway, but uh, it is more about recognizing gift, recognized calling, 
moving forward together with everybody involved. It would not be right for us to neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Somebody challenged me the other day. They said to me, why are you doing that? Shouldn't someone else be doing it? Actually, they're probably right. It was a useful challenge to me to find somebody else. It was an important job. It needed to be done. Uh, I could see value in me doing it. But actually, they were probably right. I probably could have found, I probably should be finding somebody else to do that. Which is what the disciples did, the apostles did. Choose seven men from among you. And we will turn responsibility over to them. They found someone else. They involved others. The church stepped up to the plate and the widows were cared for. You probably can't see this very well, but some of you will be familiar with. That's, that's our rota for today on Church Street. That's our rota for all the people that are involved in today, all the various ministries that go on. There are 24 names on the list for today. 24 of you participating in making this service happen. Which one is the most important? Me? Rick? The musicians? The tech team? The powerhouse team? Those in creche? The people who welcomed you when you arrived this morning? The refreshment team? Uh, Of course, we haven't even mentioned those who look after the fabric of the building, those who make sure we have light and heat. Uh, Emma doing the word sheets for those of you who use those. Tanya translating it into Ukrainian for our our brothers and sisters who, who find that helpful. And so on and so on and so on. Which one is the most important? I could make a case for all of them, especially for the refreshment team, by the way. But <laughs> the welcome team, how important is that? People's first impression of church. Uh, people maybe who are who just need a friendly face to greet them. Imagine without our music. Uh, those of you online, no streaming, no camera, no sound, I'd be shouting. No tech. Uh, Who's the most important? That's the wrong question. The most important question is how we do it together. How we do it all together. That's a picture taken at our elders and deacons meeting this week. Uh, I should have said thank you to everyone who's on the rotor, but thank you also to the elders, the deacons, uh, who spend so much time behind the scenes working on behalf of us as a church, trying to keep me and Charlie in order. Uh, no small task. Uh, Sarah Wood, Alison Richards are not in the... On, we're working hard there, aren't we? Uh, are, not, are not in the picture. But, but thank you to them, to Emma Sue, who provides so much support, to Charlie and I, who free us up to do some of, of what we're called to do. I'm so grateful for so many, so many of you looking around who, who participate in in so many ways in our, in our life uh, together. Apparently there's a crisis uh, 
post-COVID are volunteering. Lots of, uh, lots of community groups have found that. Uh, they can't get the volunteers they once got, and everything ends up falling into the hands of the same old few people. Uh, and I know from speaking to other ministers that lots of churches are experiencing the same thing. It's hard to find volunteers. Uh, and I'm grateful for so many of you who go the second mile and the third mile and, and the fourth mile after that. But as, as Rick has already said, we need more volunteers. He didn't even mention, mention the rotors. Uh, we've got gaps in the flower rotor. Uh, for working with the children on a Sunday, working with the teenagers on a Sunday. The teenagers are in at the moment because we didn't have anybody to, uh, to, to teach them to, this morning. Uh, the creche rotor, just about every rotor, to be honest, there, 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 are, there are gaps. Uh, wouldn't it be great, just thinking about the creche rotor, wouldn't it be great to bless the parents of our younger children with a fully staffed creche every week? Wouldn't that be great without them having to constantly fill in Fill in for us. And on top of that, we need deacons. Uh, we need a deacon to oversee uh, see our social action work. Uh, Angela Painter's moved away, as you know. Uh, we need a deacon to oversee our world mission. Uh, that room feels very, ma- very male. Uh, we, need some, we need some women deacons in particular. <laughs> Please. Uh, but as I thought about it this week, I'm not sure I like the word volunteer. I'm not sure, for instance, how much choice Stephen and his pals actually had. They certainly didn't put themselves forward. The church kind of thought about it and said, actually, we, got, we want you, 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 you. Wouldn't that be a good idea for electing new deacons? Hey, let me have a look. <laughs> uh, I guess a bit like our queen. Our queen never put her hand up to be queen. She never actually had much choice. But when the call came, she, she gave herself to the task. And actually, what I think we're looking for is not so much volunteers, but as people to serve our family here. People to help us be family together. And people to contribute towards God's mission. Because that's what it's all about at the end of the day. It's about God's mission. It's about extending God's kingdom. I saw Margaret's slides a couple of days ago and I was, I was struck by the African proverb. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. That continent has so much wisdom for us. So much wisdom we can learn from. I don't know about you, but, but actually I'm not particularly interested in fast. I'm too old for fast. But I do want to go far. And I do want to go together. And I know that we're all very busy. Time poverty is a real thing. Many of us are are resource rich. Some of us are resource rich. Many of us are time poor. And I know that many of you are juggling an enormous amount of stuff. And I'm seriously not trying to guilt trip you this morning. I don't want to do that. But if social action or world mission is something that excites you, then think about that deacon's role. And speak to Charlie or me or one of the elders. And if you're not currently on one of our rotors for Sunday morning, 
maybe an hour once a month. <laughs> Think about joining up. The more people on each rotor, the less you have to do it. And if you can help with our kids' work or our seniors' work, or you'd like to lead a small group, or you have just a bit of spare time that you could eke out and donate to God's mission, then speak to me or speak to the elders. As Rick said earlier, Lord, what would you have me do? It's a really good question. Lord, what would you have me do? Because I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm really not. But in the meantime, can I ask you to pray for the leadership of the church? Uh, we're facing a demanding time uh, in lots and lots of ways. Uh, resources, finances, people-wise, our resources are limited. And yet there are so many important needs and opportunities to mission, for God's mission. Crying for our attention, do pray for wisdom for us as we seek to help the church to balance priorities, as we seek to discern God's voice, as we seek that we can, that we can move forward together. What does that look like in the needs that we face in the 21st century so that we might go far together for God's mission? So do think about if there's anything you can do to help and do pray for us and Rick, show me, I'm finished. <laughs> and do pray for us as, 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 as trustees, as deacons, as, as leadership. We try to uh, look at the future that we might, as I say, truly go far together. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thanks. Sorry, I've kept you listening for a long time, but, but thank you.